to see that it's true. There's a lot in the world to make us anxious right now. I skimmed through a few articles this week to, look at, to, to read about the, the mental and emotional state of Americans, and I discovered that one year ago, one year ago, one in 12 American adults, one in 12 American adults felt that, that they had some symptoms of an anxiety disorder at work in their lives. This year, one year later, one in three adults in the United States. In addition, since the pandemic began, for the first time, a majority of adult Americans, 53%, feels that the pandemic is negatively impacting their own mental well-being. We live in anxious times. Beyond all that, I think most of you would agree, we also live in probably one of the most divided times in our nation in modern history. Masks or no masks, Democrat or Republican, Trump or Biden, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. Open up the economy, close it down, send our kids to school, register them up for online. And you could probably add your own list of divisive issues to that list. You get my drift. We live in anxious and divided times. In the midst of all this, however, we're still called to give ourselves to the cause of Christ, to nourish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in the heavens. And that can be a tall and daunting order sometimes. The, the question before us is, how can we have peace inwardly in the turmoil that is there, and how can we be peace outwardly in the turmoil that we find in the world? And I think the Apostle Paul has something to teach us about that in our passage today, which is really the whole of Acts 27. The good news we're going to celebrate this morning, this week, is this. Because we have received God's grace and peace, we can be God's grace and peace to others. Because we have received God's grace and peace in Christ Jesus, we can be God's grace and peace to others. We only had, as I said, part of Acts 27 read earlier. You're welcome. It's a very long chapter. But I'm going to try to fill in the gaps of what's happening in Acts 27. And as we go, I'm going to hopefully be able to lift up for us to consider a pattern that emerges in Paul's life. It is a, a beautiful picture of one of the ways that God can work in these things. And I want us to be able to see that how God works in and through us in difficult, divisive, and anxious times. Because we have received the grace and peace of God, we can be the grace of peace in God for others. So a lot has happened since last week's passage. We've skipped several chapters in the book of Acts. Paul has been arrested. He's been hauled around to and fro, questioned by one authority or another, and eventually he's been packed off and he's headed to Rome to stand trial. And in Acts chapter 27, Paul is in custody. He is on his way to Rome because he has appealed his case to Caesar. In the opening verses of the chapter, Paul is taken aboard a ship to sail for Italy. With him are Luke, the author of the book of Acts, and Aristarchus, his traveling companion. So we're, uh, we're getting an eyewitness account from Luke. He's there. In addition, the opening verse in the chapter, um, we are introduced to Julius, a centurion, a member of the Imperial Regiment. This is the man who is put in charge of the Apostle Paul while he is transporting him. Verse 3 reads, The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. 
So very early on, there is an indication here that there was a relationship building between Paul and his captors, his enemies. Julius the centurion shows kindness to Paul, but not all prisoners fared so well. They often suffered hunger and dehydration, and they were confined below deck. But Julius, in his kindness, allows Paul, while they're on land, to go and visit some friends who supply his needs. Then a bit later, Julius transfers Paul and his companions to another ship, which quickly begins to experience trouble. They encounter difficult sailing conditions. Verse 9, much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was, it was after the Day of Atonement. That is, he's saying, they were already into the winter months, which is very dangerous sailing. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. So even in biblical times, people went to Phoenix during the winter. <laughs> we find out later that the ship, was, what the, the ship was carrying grain. It was unsuitable to winter there because the weather wasn't exactly what they wanted. And if the grain became moist, picked up too much humidity, it would swell and be ruined. So despite Paul's warning, they sailed on. Then in the passage that follows, a journey gets even more harrowing. It all reads like an episode from the life of Indiana Jones. They come up against hurricane force winds. They are driven along. They nearly lose the lifeboat, but they, they pull it on board just in the nick of time. They have to pass ropes underneath the ship to hold it together. And then they throw cargo and tackle overboard. Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. So that word saved there. And variations of it pop up uh, several times in uh, this passage. They pop up in verse 20, verse 31, verse 34, verse 43, verse 44, and then again in chapter 28, verses 1 and 4. Those are all listed in the Bible app live event if you want to look at them. This, this word saved is a part of the same family of words that are often used in Scripture to talk about the theme of our spiritual salvation. There's, a, there's a, a theme that runs through this entire chapter, this entire episode of salvation. Luke has taken a very real and frightening experience that the church was facing in its early days and turned it into a metaphor. He's turned it into a metaphor of the challenges and danger faced by the early church and its mission. And in fact, this image of a ship later became a symbol in Christian art of the church. We see it in stained glass windows, the mast of the sailboat forming a cross, or in the ceilings of Gothic cathedrals, the bare beams there in the shape of the keel of a ship turned upside down. That's on purpose. The church is a ship. It's a safe place. The mission of the church is fraught with potential for peril and risk in the world, and the church is to be a safe place, much like a ship in the midst of a storm, much like Noah's Ark. There are even hints in here of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea during the Exodus. We may not want to be, I don't want to be on a ship in the midst of a storm like this, but it's a lot better to be on the ship than treading water outside of the ship. Sailors used the sun and the stars in that day. 
for navigation, but with the storm's darkness and intensity, they lost sight of them. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know where they were going. And they gave up all hope of being saved. Now, again, a reminder, this is Luke writing this account. It's an eyewitness account. He was there. That's why he uses the the phrase, we. There are parts in the book of Acts where he'll switch back and forth. You can tell. He's there because he's saying we. We gave up all hope. Who does he mean? Himself, Paul, Aristarchus, the soldiers, the sailors, all of the above? I think it's all of the above. For that is how life is sometimes. Even, Even we who know Jesus and have faith in God, we can still, when faced with dangerous and anxious times, we can, we can feel overwhelmed. But then something happens. Verse 21. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So this is a good place to begin to take note of this pattern that is emerging. First, Julius is kind to Paul. Then Paul offers a kindness to those who are on the ship. He warns them. They are his enemies, but he warns them of the dangers ahead if they don't take his advice and stay put. Now, once Paul's words have been proven true, now Paul steps in again and offers just briefly a little bit of, I told you so, you should have listened to me when I told you not to sail. And then he moves on to give them more encouraging words. In the midst of this harrowing voyage, an angel has appeared to Paul and told him not to be afraid because he must, he must stand trial in Rome. This is a part of God's plan. The angel adds even more encouraging words. Everyone else is going to make it to Rome too. Everyone's going to be okay. Paul experiences the grace and peace of God, and now he can be the grace and peace of God for others, even his enemies. Paul finishes off this little pep talk in verse 25. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. I love the way that he says this. N.T. Wright's Kingdom New Testament translation puts it this way. We must, however, be cast up on some island or other. It's almost like Paul is saying, yes, we will get there. I have faith in God, but it looks like we're going to end up on some island of some kind. That part's a little fuzzy. But the relationship and the trust between Paul and his traveling companions has grown and developed. There there also appear to be here in Paul's actions and Paul's words the beginnings of something evangelistic. We might call it pre-evangelism. Verse 23, he speaks of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, or whom I worship, either way. Paul uses his newly found position of influence to begin to mention the one true God to those who do not yet know the one true God. This is the God who promises salvation. This is the God who promises deliverance. This is the God you need to pay attention to in times of peril. Fourteen days into the storm, some of the sailors begin to sense that they are approaching land, so they take soundings and they find out that indeed the water is getting shallower. They're afraid they're going to be dashed against the rocks, so they drop anchor and they pray for daylight. But some of them have a plan. In an attempt to escape, verse 30, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. 
So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. And the pattern of presence grows here. The pattern of presence. When we talk about our ECC touchstone of presence, this is what we mean. Paul has not only borne witness to his faith with his words, he has also taken seriously the reality that he, like you and I, had been sent into his world among these sailors and his captors as an agent of change and redemption. And so he is present with them in the midst of their need. Paul's presence and the presence of the kingdom of God in him are working for the common good of all. Paul warns them a second time of what will happen if if they maintain this present course of action and this time they listen to him, this time he's earned the right to speak, his words now have authority. And we might want to be cynical and say, oh, Paul, you clearly just are trying to save your own skin. I mean, you just want to get there, whether it's for good purposes or not. You're just, you're just concerned that you make it out alive. We could say that. Uh, comedian Michael uh, Jr. often jokes about dogs and cats in his uh, routines, and in one of them, I guess, he likes to make fun of the fact that we human beings believe that our dogs actually love us. He says, your dogs don't love you. They're self-centered as anything. He upset a woman in the audience one night who came up to him afterwards and said, that's not true. My dog saved me from a burning house. Your dog saved you from a burning house? Yes. He came and woke me up so we could get out of the house. Michael said, hmm, do you have a doggy door? She said, no. He said, oh, so you're telling me your dog saved you too. We could think cynically that Paul is simply trying to save his own skin, but I believe he cares about the common good of all here. The soldiers take his word as authoritative. Now, not only do they stop those who are trying to get away in the lifeboat, they cut the ropes and let the lifeboat drift away. That's faith. To borrow from another of our ECC Touchstones transformation, these soldiers, these soldiers are on the journey from curiosity about Paul's God to Christiformity in Paul's Christ. They've got a ways to go, of course. But they are being transformed and discipled even before they come to faith. They are learning things about God's nature even though, even before they've come to know or acknowledge Christ as Lord. And the Spirit is at work in your life and in mine in the same way too. For we too have received the grace and peace of God and we can therefore be the grace and peace of God for others. And then we come to the climactic moment in the adventure. We did not hear this read earlier. Verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. So there are several beautiful moments in this section here. First, the grace and peace that Paul had received from Christ continues to grow and bear witness among the ship's crew, like yeast in a batch of dough. All the way, by word and by deed, Paul has been present to his captors and the sailors, drawing them toward Christ. Paul has been the grace and peace of God for them. 
Likely, the most important part of this section, however, is how Luke records Paul's actions and words. Verse 35, Luke writes, After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. Where have we heard those words before? He took some bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. Communion. Twice in Luke's gospel, he uses those same phrases to describe Jesus' actions. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, when Jesus institutes the sacrament of communion, or also known as the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, when he does that, Luke writes this, And he, Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them. After his resurrection, Luke uses the same phrases again when Jesus eats a meal with two travelers on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, verse 30. It was at this exact moment that Jesus broke and gave the bread to these two travelers that their eyes were opened and that Jesus was revealed to them and they recognized him. This moment in Acts 27 is the moment by which we begin to understand everything else that has happened so far. It's the key. The word I just used, the word in the title, Eucharist, literally means thanksgiving or blessing, and it refers to the sacrament of communion. In the breaking of the bread and the taking of the cup, we experience the grace and peace of God. The the Eucharist or communion is considered a sacrament, as is baptism. The definition of a sacrament is that it is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. It is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. It's not likely here that Paul is actually serving them communion, but rather that both Luke and Paul want us to understand that Paul's presence and activity aboard this ship is Eucharistic, is sacramental. His his presence, his life was a work of grace and peace in the lives of all who knew him in that place. And And in Paul's Eucharistic life, Jesus was revealed and You and I are all called to live Eucharistic lives. Sacramental lives as well. Because we have received the grace and peace of God, we can can be the grace and peace of God when we are anxious and overwhelmed. We can be the grace and peace of God to others when they are anxious and overwhelmed. And like Paul, on a ship under arrest, surrounded by his captors and his enemies, We can even be the grace and peace of God to our enemies. Those from whom we are divided. Those with whom we may strongly disagree. I bought my wife a t-shirt a few months ago. It had a phrase on it that um, I thought she would find meaningful. I found it meaningful. But it took it a long time to get there for some reason. And so it, it surprised me. I totally forgot about it. It arrived in the mail one day, and she tore it open, and <clears throat> the phrase uh, on the t-shirt, she read it, the phrase said, God loves the people you hate. God loves the people you hate, and the first thing she said was, that's convicting. Now, I know my wife. I know my wife like I know my own mind. You will never find anyone as trusting or as kind as she is. <laughs> or as loving as she is. And my guess is, If she finds it difficult to love all the people whom God loves, then most of the rest of us do too. It's hard. Because people can be rude and angry and mean and hateful and evil. And yet, 
And yet, I truly believe if we have received the grace and peace of God Almighty in Christ Jesus, if we have received the grace and peace of God Almighty, we can be the grace and peace of God Almighty even to our enemies. I certainly don't do that perfectly. I don't even think I even do that well half the time. I told somebody the other day I feel like a hypocrite most of the time. It's hard. But I still believe it's possible. I still believe it's possible. We have everything we need in order to be the grace and peace of God, even to our enemies. Paul, in bearing witness to his enemies of the grace and peace of God, doesn't start with proclamation. He starts with the missional reality that before we can bring good news to others, we must first be good news to and for others. Before we can bring and speak the good news, we must be good news. And even before that, of course, we have to believe the good news. We have to believe the good news. Put another way, I'll ask you, do you believe the good news of Jesus Christ deep in your heart, deep in your lives? Have you received the grace and peace of God in your life? Have you personally chosen to surrender your life to Christ and answer His call to follow Him and to live out a kingdom way of life on earth as it is in heaven? And if not, I invite you to simply begin by praying a simple prayer to God. But I want you to take note of something. The words that I'm going to invite you to pray right now don't do the saving. The words are not magical words. What matters is the heart. What matters is can you express some level of faith in these words? And do you have the intention to give yourself to Christ, to pledge allegiance to Christ, and to live a life of grace and peace the world so desperately needs? If so, I invite you to pray to God using the prayer on the screen. Let's, let's go to prayer now. Anyone can pray it out loud if you'd like or silently.